Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis-Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page, and if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn, and in today's wintry episode, I interview crime thriller author Michael Ridpath about Iceland. From the cracking ice of the glaciers to the black church near the lava fields and on to the steaming hot pools of the Blue Lagoon, Iceland is a country of stark natural beauty and interesting folklore. Michael talks about the hidden people, the trolls and the ghost in the mist, as well as the landscape as character and why he keeps returning to the country for inspiration. I hope you enjoy escaping to Iceland. Michael Ridpath is a British author of crime and thriller novels. His Magnus crime thriller series is set in Iceland, and he has a website, writinginice.com, which features articles and pictures from his research travels. Welcome, Michael. Hello. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. So first up, you're British with close ties to the USA. So what drew you to write about Iceland in the first place and to keep going back there? Well, I think your question kind of encapsulates it because I knew nothing at all about Iceland <laughs> and that was its attraction. They say when you start writing, you should write about what you know. So I used to be a banker a long time ago and I wrote a number of financial thrillers, which was set all over the world in places like Brazil and Wyoming and South Africa and the Czech Republic. And those worked really well to start with and then they kind of ran out of steam as these things do. So I needed a new plan. And I decided I would write a detective series. So I had the same kind of main character in each book, which seemed like an interesting idea. But I needed the the detective to be distinctive. And because I like writing about foreign places, I thought, well, he needs to come from an interesting country. (laughs) And I had had two ideas. One was the first one that came to my head, which you should always go as the first thing that comes to your head, was Iceland. Because I'd been on a book tour there in 1995, and it was the weirdest, most surreal book tour I've ever had and I thought well one day I'll write about that and I did lots of analysis and thinking and came up with an idea about an honest cop in Saudi Arabia which seemed like a really good idea for a story and then I decided I would make sure people would buy the book when I'd written it so um, (laughs) so I asked people whether they preferred a story about an Icelandic detective or one set in Saudi Arabia and there was a huge huge majority in favor of Iceland which people like me didn't know about but wanted to find out about and no one was interested in Saudi Arabia so so Iceland it was. So that's really interesting because in, in my head you know Iceland versus Saudi Arabia these are two very different uh, temperatures let alone anything else and you mentioned that you like traveling to foreign places so what was it about the foreignness I guess of Iceland that attracted you? It's because it's a totally weird place. I found some people love Iceland and those are people who like the quirky and strange. And some people find Iceland sort of rather dull because the weather is appalling. It's wind and rain and it's not even that snowy most of the time. But as I said, it's an odd place. It's kind of a mixture of the old and the new. So landscape, 
looks really bleak and old because there are all these kind of lava fields and fjords and glaciers. But actually, that's mostly a result of, of the fact it's new geologically. It's sort of work in progress. There's volcanic eruptions and earthquakes all over the place. All, all these vol- volcanoes are producing basically essentially a new country. And the people as well. It, Iceland used to be the poorest country in Europe about 70 or 80 years ago. And it's now about the richest country in Europe. So, you know, modern Icelanders are all on, they've been on social media for a decade and they're very high tech and, and so on. But you don't have to go back very long when they were living in turf houses and um, just eking a very, very tough living. It's kind of an interesting contrast. And it's a place that I found, it's one of those things, the more you find out about it, the more you want to find out about it, which if you're going to spend a whole series over 10 years writing a detective novel, series of detective novels, you definitely need that to be the case. Mm. And you mentioned lava fields and uh, the volcanoes there. And I guess one very famous thing about Iceland is is, is the hot springs. I, that's something that I've certainly read about. So tell us, what part does, does the lava fields play? And if people are visiting, where are the ones you recommend? Well, one of the best ones to look at is when you drive in from the airport. The, the international airport is 40 kilometres from Reykjavik. And there's a drive that you have to do somehow on a bus or in a taxi or somehow. And you go through this amazing lava field, which has no trees, no grass. It's just kind of black and brown ridges and folds and so on. And and that's quite spectacular. But I think my favourite lava field is in a peninsula called Snæfellsnes, which is about 100 kilometres north of Reykjavik. And there are two farms there, which have been there since the settlement of Iceland a thousand years ago. And on these two farms a thousand years ago, one of them brought some berserkers back from Sweden. And he told the berserkers to cut a path through the lava field between these two farms, which the berserkers did. And then after doing that, one of the berserkers wanted to marry the other farmer's daughter and he didn't like that. So he he killed the berserkers. And berserkers, if you don't know, sort of Viking warriors who go crazy and against tremendous energy and are then exhausted. So after they were exhausted, one of the Vikings, one of the farmers killed, killed the berserkers and buried them in the middle of the lava field. And that was a thousand years ago, and it's detailed in the sagas. But if you go there now, you see this amazing lava field. This one's full of folds and pinnacles, uh, about 20 or 30 feet high. And it's called the berserkjachren, which means the berserkers lava field. And you go to a certain spot and there's a tiny little sign which says Berserkjagata, which is the berserker's path. And there's this kind of path cut through the stones of this lava field. And you walk along it about, I don't know, 400 metres. And you come to a grave. You know, it's a kind of stone square grave. And about 100 years ago, some British archaeologists dug, dug down and found two oversized skeletons down there. So that is the most atmospheric lava field in in Iceland. And one I I heartily recommend because it's one of those places that isn't on the tourist track, but is really, really atmospheric. Oh, wow. That sounds great. I love that. It's a great story. So what about, you mentioned fjords. And in my mind, again, the sort of blue ice is one of the images that you often see sort of on tourist photos. So what are sort of those stunning natural places to visit? Well, the fjords are stunning. The blue ice actually is just in one place, which is called the Jökulsárion, which is um, 
Glacier Lagoon, which is in the southeast of Iceland. And there a glacier, a massive glacier, comes down from the middle center of Iceland and just falls, falls apart into, into a lagoon, which then, as the ice melts, it crashes into this lagoon and then that goes out to the sea. And of course, you get these tiny little icebergs, which are a wonderful translucent blue color. And once again, if you go a little bit away from all the tourists are and just sit and watch it, you can see the, the lovely ice, but you can also hear this sort of tinkling sound of, of the ice melting and, and dripping into the water. So that's, that's I, I suppose, the, the famous ice place. But there's one place, I think my favourite and most beautiful place in Iceland, it actually isn't too far from the Berserkers Lava Field on, on Snæfellsnes. And there's this one spot where you can see kind of all the best in Iceland. It, it's called the Hotel Bouvier. And it's a hotel just all by itself as a hotel and a l- tiny little black church. And they're isolated on the south coast of Snæfellsnes. So you can't really see any other buildings at all. And on one side, you can see seven miles of beach with, a, with, with horses riding along it. Then if you go sort of south, there's the um, fjord. And on the other side, you can see um, a, a bit of Iceland just, just over the fjord. And then if you go round, you, you see a lava field. And then you see a kind of massive crater. Then behind that, there's come something called Snæfellsjökull, which is a, which is a perfect volcano, you know, a bit like Mount Fuji, with a kind of glacier at the top and a, and a cone, and a stone which is a little bit like a question mark. And that was used by Jules Verne for his place for journey to the centre of the Earth. So that was the entrance down to the centre of the Earth. And that looks, that looks magical. And then to the north, there are these amazing um, waterfalls coming off the mountains and there are eagles, sea eagles there. It's absolutely an astounding place. And I go there every time I can because in summer, it's gorgeous. In autumn, it's gorgeous. At nighttime, I, mean, I saw the northern lights over this Snæfells volcano uh, once. Uh, it, it really is, I think, about the most beautiful place in the world. So it's called Hotel Boudier, which is B-U-D-I-R. It's on Snæfell's Ness. And once again, if anyone's in Iceland, it, it's, the hotel itself is a great place to stay. It's, it's slightly expensive, but, but worth it. And then there's this tiny little black church, which is right next to it. There used to be a village there, but that's kind of disappeared. And so there are ruins there instead. So there's this kind of church which stands up on, on top of a hill and looks quite dramatic. So mm. I think that's, that's the most beautiful place I know in Iceland. Oh, wow. And it's also very evocative. And you've put this, the vision of this berserker's grave and this black church and the, the entrance to the centre of the earth. And it just sounds sort of mythological and folklorish. So what are some of the interesting myths or folklore things that you find fascinating that are quite specific to Iceland? Well, there are an awful lot of them. One of the big ones are the trolls. So that's a fairly basic idea where there are these giant trolls that are caught when the sun rises and they they freeze into stone and so a lot of the the pinnacles lava fields have these kind of stone pinnacles that from certain angles look like people so those could be trolls and there are famous stone trolls all over Iceland but the big thing is the hidden people have you ever heard of the hidden people no 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 I haven't either (laughs) but actually the first time I went to a publisher's dinner with and this the head of marketing started talking about the hidden people I really thought she was just taking the mick but <laughs> but anyway <laughs> Iceland is, has got a population of 300,000 real people and 10,000 hidden people and these hidden people live in stones most so every farm will have a stone with its local hidden person family that the farmer will have known for generations 
And the hidden people um, obviously are hidden most of the time to most people. So you can't see them. They're a bit like elves and they're sometimes called elves. And they, they generally keep themselves to themselves, but sometimes they'll help out if there are troubles. So if people get lost in the mountains, the hidden people will help them back to wherever they're supposed to go. One common thing they do is when a grandmother, when someone, a, a woman is expecting a baby, the hidden person will come to the mother or more often the grandmother and say what the name of the baby should be. And I've met people. I met, I met a woman called Raga who was called Raga because her grandmother was told by a hidden person that's what she should be called. Hmm. So, so you, there are these hidden people everywhere. And I go and I went, went to a farm and, you know, the first thing I asked the farm was where are the hidden local hidden people? So but the problem is that obviously this is well integrated into Icelandic society, but there are the elf deniers who are the sort of modern Icelanders who can't stand the idea of hidden people and think the whole thing's a tourist ripoff and that no one sensible believes in them anymore. So there's a kind, it's a bit of a minefield where you've got the sort of classic old mythology and folklore and, and, and the modern Iceland I was talking about earlier, where they think it, it just makes them a bit of a laughing stock. But actually, I think there are quite a few modern, I mean, I met the number two in the British embassy who was very fluent on it. And as I say, my publishers are fluent on it. So I think a lot of modern Icelanders like the idea of the hidden people and don't want to um, deny them, uh, a bit like denying Father Christmas. Uh, so I, I think they will live on, but you have to be a little careful when talking to Icelanders about them because some of them get quite upset. Well, I, I see. I love that. I think that is fascinating. And it, I mean, this does happen so often in many cultures. There are things that have persisted a long time and then there's a layer on the top of more institutionalized religion, I guess, because you mentioned that church. So yeah. clearly there are Christians in the country. So how does that sort of layering of belief work in, in the culture? Well, interesting. I mean, Christ Christianity came to Iceland in the year 1000, where the law speaker of the Icelandic parliament put a cloak over his head and sat there for three days thinking about whether they should all become Christians. And then he decided they should. And then, of course, they all had to get baptised, but the, the, the river by this outside, outside parliament is really cold, so they went 10 miles to a local... You're talking about hot, hot springs, and there's a hot lake that they all jumped in to get baptised. In a way, that kind of sums up their attitude to religion. So they had all this sort of Viking folklore that they more or less kept going with a kind of religious veneer which helped them deal with the Norwegians politically. And, and it, the Christianity in, in Iceland is Lutheranism, which I'm told by Icelandic priests, <laughs> has a sort of good line in dealing with the devil. But a rural priest in Iceland will know a lot about various ways of essentially exorcising the local devils and demons and getting on with the hidden people and so on. So they co-opted the local folklore and made it part of a quite a sort of fire and brimstone religious thing. And a lot of the old folk stories in Iceland have priests as their protagonists. So they've been quite clever at at doing that. I think that happens in other remote areas. You know, Christianity can be can be quite flexible in the way it, it deals with local conditions. 
Oh, absolutely. And it is interesting. I mean, even here where I live in Bath, we've got the ancient Roman spring uh, to a pagan goddess right next to the abbey. (laughs) And I always think this is the layers of history where the ancient is right next to the new. And of course, you started out saying that, that it's a a layered place of of old and new. You've mentioned several sort of darker things. I, I keep coming back to this black church and these black lava fields and the entrance to the centre of the earth. Obviously, you write crime thrillers. I've read a couple of your books and you write about the darker side of human nature. That is crime and thriller. That's that's what we do. And I wondered, how do you think that plays into the Icelandic character, especially given the long, dark winters and and these long summers? Yes, um, it's... I mean, for, for example, ghosts. I, I don't believe in ghosts, except when I'm in Iceland, and then I do believe in ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, there's there's one a place I put in one of my books where it's, once again, it's one of these places where there's no one there, but you drive on a little side road, and then you drive down a track, and then you park against some rocks, and then you walk down to the seaside, seashore. It's a place called Selatunga on the south shore of, of Iceland. And there are, once again, it's a lava field that tumbles into this sort of black frozen stone that tumbles into the sea. And it was used as a as a fishing station by Icelanders. And so there's some, um, uh, you, you, these things that look like rock turn out to be kind of hovels and people live there. And, and then you're walking through that and then the, the mist comes in from the sea and it's really scary. <laughs> and, and there is a ghost there, you know, there's, there's what he called um, Selatonga Thomas or something, which doesn't surprise me. So, so yeah, yes, the weather does lend to a sort of sinister attitude. And of course, I mean, the, the winters, one way of understanding Iceland is to think of farming because before they were fishermen, they were farmers. And their farming involved in the winter, basically they would sit in their farmhouses, which were in the bottom were the animals and in the top were the people, and basically just stay there whilst there was snow outside hibernating. So they would read and they would spin and do nothing um, for six months or four or five months, six months. And then in the summer, they had, during the winter, they were they were living off all the crops that they had harvested in the summer. So in the summer, they all had to work furiously hard, sort of 23-hour days, because it was daylight, to get all the hay in and all that sort of stuff. And so they were all working very hard and were full of energy. And that kind of has, has carried on into, into Reykjavik now. So even within the city during the winter time. It gets light about 9.30, 10 o'clock. It gets dark about 3, 4. People spend a lot of time in their rather scruffy-looking houses, which are very cosy inside with lots of candles. And then in the summertime, there are people bouncing around all times of day and night. Um, you know, everyone seems to be on, on speed, essentially. It's as though the whole lot have been taking amphetamines. It's because the long, the long days give them, give them so much energy. And so during the winter, they've developed the reading habit, because they all used to read to each other. And during the summer, they've developed this habit of being very active and doing a lot. So they all have two or three jobs. They have a job during the day and they'll be playing in a band or singing to an opera or playing football in the evening. So they're very kind of active and, and busy people. And, and that does come out of this, this weather that I, I was describing. Mm. Well, that's interesting. How has that affected you when you visit? Do you visit at specific times of year to participate in these various seasonal shifts? Yeah, interesting. I I, I started off by visiting in May and June, which are obviously longest periods. And one of the things that used to irritate me about 
Scandinavian fiction. It's not really a bad thing, but it tends to be wintry. It tends to be dark and gloomy. And my experience of Iceland and Icelandic society and the Icelandic people was they weren't dark and gloomy. They were incredibly optimistic. They were jumping around everywhere, full of energy and vitality, because that was summer Iceland. So I wanted to write about a place where people are doing things and are active and optimistic. Having said that, I've been a few times in November, and that has its own kind of mystery and the sort of sinister sinister appeal. So I think the book I'm writing at the moment will take place then, and that's requiring a sort of very different mindset because obviously everything happens indoors and it's cold. <laughs> mm, do you have a title for that one yet? Death in Dalvik, I think, is is what it starts as. I don't know if it'll finish that way, but there's a town called Dalvik, and whenever I came across it, I thought, one day I'm going to write a book called Death in Dalvik. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll work out who dies there and take it from there. Oh, absolutely. I, like I, I do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so you've mentioned Reykjavik. What's particularly interesting there in terms of, you mentioned it was more modern, like what are there? To, what, what things are there to do? It's interesting. There's an old bit in the middle, which is very, it looks a bit like a toy town, really. It has these metal houses, all the old houses, and they're not that old. They're, they were built sort of 1880 to 1920 were made of wood, um, and then they were clad in iron on the on the roof, corrugated iron on the walls and the roof, and painted bright colours. And so it all looks quite quite jolly. So you've got these little houses with bright red roofs and bright, bright blue walls and so on, and they're on a hill in, in, in the middle of town. So that, that creates a nice sort of atmosphere. And the reason they had to clad the walls is that the rain in Reykjavik falls horizontally rather than vertically so <laughs> the walls were rotting unless they put you know clad them in in corrugated iron so so that's the sort of central bit the, the outskirts are really kind of east german in their concrete dreariness but the, the town itself has there's a lot of amateur art in iceland so in Reykjavik so it's a bit like a sort of a whole town has got involved in a gcse project or maybe an a-level art project through so all these kind of funky, quite quirky little artistic sculptures or graffiti or little semi-humorous ideas around the place, which make it a, a nice place to sort of look around in lots of galleries with imaginative pieces of, of lava stone or fish skin and paintings and so on. And then there's one go- gorgeous bit of art, which is something called the Harper Concert Centre, which is which was built in the middle of the crash, actually, which is a, a tremendous huge concert centre built of blocks of glass by Oliver Eliasson. And the, the way the sunlight goes through that is like a multitude of rainbows. It really is gorgeous. That's one piece of really dramatic world-class art right in, right in the middle of the city. But it, I mean, it's a capital city, but it's also like a sort of small Yorkshire town, a bit like, a, I don't know, Huddersfield or something. So <laughs> the parliament looks like a county Hall in, in Yorkshire it has that same kind of stone, which, which is blackened that a lot of those Yorkshire towns have. So in some ways, it, it, it's an international capital city. On the other hand, it's just a small town. Um, it's, mm. uh, it, it's interesting. It, it does sound interesting. So if people are, are going, because some countries where I talk to people, we're, we're talking about there's so much to do. You know, someone will email me from America and say, I want to come to England for a week. How do I see everything? <laughs> And, and that's really difficult. But how long should people uh, go to Iceland for if they want to get a good sense of it? Because it, it's a lot smaller, really, isn't it? Well, it is. But um, I mean, the, if you've got time, the best thing to do is to drive. Basically, there's only one road in Iceland that goes around the outside. So 
the best thing to do is do a trip around that. And you could easily spend two or three weeks doing that because there are all these tiny little byways. And there's a lot of really dramatic scenery to see. So you could spend two weeks there. The problem with it is it's quite expensive. So in a way, it's the kind of place to go to four or five for four or five days and maybe spend a couple of days in Reykjavik and then hire a car and drive. I would say drive to this place I described in the north, Snifelsnes, which is a peninsula 100 kilometres north of Reykjavik. So it's a kind of two-hour drive, which is doable, and then you can stay there, and then lots there's lots to see there and then come back. The other thing that a lot of people do in Iceland is what's called the Golden Triangle, which is to see Gullfoss, which is a massive, very powerful waterfall. Geysir, which is a geyser. <laughs> um, and the third thing is Thingvetlir, which is this outdoor parliament I mentioned earlier, which is in a sort of rift valley with a dramatic gorge, which is where the Vikings used to have their annual parliament. And those three are worth seeing, but they're very, very touristy. And of course, the other thing is the, is the Blue Lagoon, which is a hot lagoon, which is actually artificial. It's the runoff water from the local geothermal power station, but it is a pretty amazing place, very expensive. And that's mm. like a massive swimming pool of very hot, steamy water, which is best seen in winter when it's so steamy you, can, you can't really see beyond it. And that's very atmospheric there. That's mm. quite expensive. So those are the options if you're going to Iceland. But you can easily spend two weeks there or longer. And I, I haven't yet my, made my way all the way around the island because I'm never able to go for more than four or five days, which is a shame. One day, one day. <laughs> one day. But you have been there a number of times. So how do you keep notes about your trips? <laughs> and have you any specific techniques for describing places in an evocative way as you, as you have been sharing with us? I think one thing that I've discovered really, I read it in a book by someone called, I think, Bickman once. And it's one of those things, sometimes you read a book in a how to write book and it really sticks and it really works. Is, is when describing places, you try, I try and make places seem familiar to people. So I'm not trying to make somewhere sound beautiful. I'm trying to make it so when someone reads a book, they think, yes, I know that place. So usually when I go to a new place like Reykjavik, say, I'll look out for a couple of things which can act as symbols that I'll repeat. So in Reykjavik, there are two of them. There's a, a mountain called Mount Essia, which is over just over the, the bay from Reykjavik. And it's a long, broad mountain that looks different every time you look at it. So sometimes it's grey, sometimes it's white, because the sun is so low there. Sometimes it'll be pink. You know, if you're feeling sad, it'll look gloomy. If you're feeling happy, it can be blazing golden. And what I tend to do is I mention that early on in the book, and then again, and then again, and then again, describing it in different ways. I think what happens then is the reader sort of sees Mount Esther to start with and thinks, okay, that's fine. And then they see it again. They think, oh, yeah, I remember that mountain. And then by the time they've seen it for the third or fourth or fifth time, it's a bit like they're actually visiting the, the town. They feel that they know the city. So I find whenever I go to a place, whether it's big or small, I'm looking for that one kind of symbol of the place, which I will pick on and mention many times. And I think doing that makes the reader feel familiar with it. So, so it's, it's looking looking for kind of candidates for what is it that's going to sum up this place. And normally it's something that's, that can be described in, in different ways by different characters. So it, it can also kind of move the story along. Mm, I like that because, of course, when you're visiting at different times of year as you are or, or the, the scenes in a book are at different times and different people, the light's different and there'll be a, a different emotional resonance, uh, I guess. Yes, yes, absolutely. I, I mean, some people think it's kind of corny 
the, what do they call it, the pathetic fallacy or something, but, but actually using weather and landscape to help the way a reader feels the atmosphere of the story they're reading is very effective. It's also true to life. I mean, Iceland is an incredibly atmospheric place. And if you go there and walk around the place, I was talking about how, you know, I felt like I could feel the ghosts. Or if you're work, walking through that berserker's lava field, you actually being there are really feeling something from the atmosphere. And so when you're reading a book, I think it's important to, and perfectly valid and legitimate to, to transfer that mood onto onto the characters and how they feel about what's going on in the story. And actually, somewhere as uh, sort of incredibly different as Iceland, the landscape itself is a character. So it, it has to be evoked in that way. Yes, and it's a character that changes. It's, I mean, it's true of all, I'm sure it's true of the books you write too, but uh, these characters change, the landscape changes and the, and the characters do. So, so yes, that's definitely true. And then importantly, food and drink, because when I travel, you have to try some of the local stuff, but it's always good to get a view of what is worth trying and what is best avoided. <laughs> well, they come in, in two families, food and drink. Um, there's the traditional Icelandic fare. And if you remember, I was saying Iceland was a very poor country with people sitting out the winter in a mm. turf hovel. So their food wasn't that great. <laughs> so the local, the sort of local specialities are things like boiled sheep's head, <laughs> sheep's testicles, or the real, the real, the worst one is fermented shark, which is shark which has been left to rot for six months. Um, because before it's left to rot, it's poisonous. It's Greenland shark. But then if you leave it for long enough, then the, it all turns to ammonia. <laughs> if you eat that, it sort of blows your sinuses out. And you're supposed to have that with something called krenven, which is a, a kind of Icelandic spirit, which also blows your sinuses out. So the, the combination is quite good. So that's the traditional thing, which, of course, they still push and still eat. But in the last 20 years, they have very good raw, I mean, they have very good, I was going to say raw material, but essentially food walking around and swimming around. So the fish is extraordinary for the fresh fish. And also the lamb is really good because of the way the stuff the lambs feed on and, and also the way it's killed and so on. So the lamb and the fish is really good and they have some good, you know, some of the, the high-priced restaurants have extremely good fish and lamb with sort of local samphire, for example, which can be good. The vegetables are a bit dodgy. They all come from greenhouses, which are geothermally heated. So they're all right, or else they're imported from Spain or something, and they're not all right. So, so the, veg the vegetables aren't so good, but the lamb and the fish is very good. And any spirits or, or local beer, or what do they drink in, in a local tipple? It's really not very good for that. They, they didn't even dr allow beer until, I think, the 1980s. They were, we suffered from this. I mean, Scandinavian countries sadly suffer from alcoholism and have done for centuries. So the Icelandic response to this was to ban alcohol, essentially, until quite recently, which means that they don't really have much of a local drink culture apart from this Brenven, which is basically moonshine, <laughs> which they would ferment on their farms. So the beer drinking started in, in the 80s, and there were two or three kind of classic lagers more recently, in the last few years, they've started the microbrewery thing. And because Iceland is quite enthusiastic about the stuff, some of that is actually quite good. So this might change quite soon. So I wouldn't be surprised if, if in five years' time or ten years' time, they actually have some pretty good microbrewery-type type beer. The beer is incredibly expensive, too. Don't ever – one rule if you go to Iceland, never, ever buy a round. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> it's about to send me back 35 quid. And the Icelanders <laughs> looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> so well, basically in Iceland, everyone buys their own drink. Right. Well, no, that's good. That's good to know. But it is interesting because, of course, with the purity of water coming off the, the ice and the glaciers and things, you would expect some kind of, I don't know, whiskey and, and beer and things where the purity of the water is part of the process. So I wonder if that will happen over time, because, as you said, it's quite an entrepreneurial culture, isn't it? Yes, uh, it's interesting, this purity of water thing. I and mean, the Icelanders have, have started trying to sell that, and it sounds pure. But when you think about it, there, there's basically two types of water in Iceland. There's the stuff that comes out of the shower, which comes from geothermal places. And so it's, in Reykjavik, if you have a shower in Reykjavik, you smell slightly of sulphur. In fact, the whole city smells slightly of sulphur. So it's not dangerous, but it's not super pure. And I was, I was very taken by the idea of this pure water coming from off a glacier until someone pointed out that water fell the snow 10,000 years ago and has been <laughs> sitting around in you know grit and grime and so they they have to filter it and and essentially and then give it to you as glacial water so the fact it's 10,000 years old doesn't make it super clean <laughs> so I'm always a bit skeptical of Iceland glacial water but they do do a good job of marketing it. I was going to say yeah tourist marketing is a good <laughs> way forward. <laughs> But apart from your own books, what are a couple of books that you recommend, uh, either set in Iceland or about Iceland? I mean, the main ones are the, are the sagas. So these were stories that were told about a thousand years ago and written down about eight hundred years ago. And when I and they're mostly about the settlers, the Vikings who came to Iceland then a thousand years ago, and it's about their families. And it's where saga means saying or story, but obviously our word saga comes from the Icelandic sagas. And I was a bit nervous about reading those to start with because medieval literature can be a little dull sometimes. But they're actually very taut thrillers. The characterization is great. What goes on is exciting. And the people seem really real. And so, especially in modern translations, because in the original Icelandic, they're, they're full of short sentences like a modern British or American thriller. And those are really good. So the most famous one is, is Njol's saga. And Njol was a lawyer. And it's essentially a legal thriller set in the, you know, 970s. <laughs> it's really good. So I would recommend that one. There's a book called Independent People, which is Iceland's greatest work of literature by Haldor Laxness, who won the Nobel Prize. And that's about this very independent farmer called Bjartor, who is a really tough guy living in the 19, in about 1920 who just puts up with all kinds of misery and yet fights on through it. And he has the true Icelandic spirit. And actually, it's sometimes it can be a bit of a struggle to read, but it can be extremely funny. It's one of those books, once you've read it, and I've read it twice, once you've read it, you're really gl glad you read it. And, and I got more of it out of it the second time. And then the third thing I should mention is, for such a small country, there are a number of really, really good crime writers. Um, Arnaldur and Dredesen, one's a... a, a International Dagger in, Crime Writer's Dagger in 2005, one of his books. But there's three or four others. Um, Rag, uh, Ragnar Jonasson, Irsa Sigurdardottir, um, and Lilia Sigurdardottir, who are, and an Englishman called Quentin Bates, who, who has an Icelandic wife. And, and they, those write really good, interesting crime novels set in Iceland, which they also seem to think is, is a good backdrop. So I, I'd recommend any of those. And then tell us, if people want to get started with your Iceland crime series, which book should they start with? And, and tell us a bit about that. Well, the first one is um, 
uh, Where the Shadows Lie. And it's when I decided to write my first book about Iceland, I thought, what's a really big kind of story? This is sort of verging into your territory, I think, Joanna, <laughs> where, you know, a, a bit like the Da Vinci Code, where there's some sort of big myth that I could apply to this small country. And the obvious thing seemed to be Lord of the Rings. And, and what if Lord of the Rings was, was inspired by a saga? And that was a lost saga that someone discovers and gets murdered for. And of course, with a bit of research, I found out that Lord of the Rings was, was inspired by a saga and that Tolkien was an expert on Iceland and on, on the sagas himself. And so it was one of those things where sort of reality neatly fit into my plan for a novel. So basically, it's about a lost saga, which Tolkien, Tolkien used to write Lord of the Rings, which is discovered in Iceland today. And people get slightly overexcited about it. So that's the first in the series, Where the Shadows Lie. And that introduces Magnus as he comes. He's an Icelandic American. So he's an Icelander who's working as a homicide cop in Boston. And then he's moved back to, he moves back to Iceland. And that's his, that's his first case. Mm, that sounds great. And you have this website now, Writing in Ice. So tell people what they can find there and where else they can find you online. <clears throat> well, Writing in Ice is on um, writinginice.com. And it's basically, I mean, I've done so much research over the last 10 years about Iceland, I thought maybe I can make that f- more freely available. And I realised that if I did that through the eyes of a crime, what a crime writer needed to do in order to research a country, it'd be quite a nice perspective of it, of it. I mean, a way of writing essentially a travel book. So it's it's a blog, and I will probably turn it into a book where I go through how I decided to write about Iceland and all the ways that I I've learned about the country, its history, its people, traveling around, looking at the different settings in which I was going to set the stories, and the different kind of people I met there, you know, the different characters. And so that's a that's, as I say, a blog, writinginice.com. And otherwise, I have my website, michaelridpath.com, which has all my Iceland books and all the others I've written, which are, which are piling up. <laughs> they are indeed. Well, thanks so much for your time, Michael. That was great. Thanks very much, Joan. I enjoyed it. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.